Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. This is Being Human. I'm Richard Atherton. Delighted to welcome today's guest, Tobias Mayer, who I like to think of as as the people's agile coach. So thank you for giving up your time today. Um, But I thought I'd start before we get into agile and all that is Tobias Mayer. How are you? Because I know you had hospitalized. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been through some things recently, and um, but on the mend. So I was physically and mentally deranged for a while, but um, I'm kind of back to normal. So what happened? Yeah, because I saw the, the, the um, photos on social and your face was out yeah, here. That, that was, uh, I, they still don't really know what happened, but it was uh, uh, some kind of infection that got under my skin and uh, just sort of took over and mutated and stuff. Yeah, it was a little bit, a bit scary. Um, yeah, but you know these things happen and they pass and uh, life goes on. And the other thing that I and we don't have to go there now, but one thing I was really impressed by was the fact that you shared openly about a a sort of flare up in in an addiction and a relapse yeah, off the back yeah, of it. And, yeah, and you were quite open about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean that's why I say physically and mentally deranged. I mean deranged is probably not a kind word to use on myself, but. Um, yeah, I mean, this is you know, addiction, alcohol and drug addiction has been a, um, something I've actually battled with or lived with, really, I suppose, for, for decades, essentially, decades, you know, and uh, it's, it's mostly been um, on the good side of it, but it never really goes away, so it came back. And uh, I took myself off to be looked after and reminded of um, what I need to do to uh, stay healthy. Mm. So it was a good, it was a, it was a good choice, you know. And uh, when I wrote about it, you know, I, I kind of thought there's a tendency that people might see this as I'm looking for pity or something, and I'm so not, you know. Um, in fact, I would I would describe it as a, actually a really healthy and positive experience, you know, and, um, being in that place and being with, I, I suppose I, I would call them my kinfolk, you know. They may not be like me in outward appearance or jobs or uh, in anything really, but there's a, there's a commonality there. So um, it was a good, it was a rest and it was a, um, well, it was a rest to some extent. It was also quite hard work. You know, you don't just go and sit there and kick back. You, you, you have to, you, you, there's a lot of therapy involved in it and, uh, and yoga, which was great. I, I got onto a yoga kick from there as well. I do that every day now. Okay. And that's, uh, that's been a really nice thing, actually. My wife and I do yoga in the mornings. She's been doing it for, uh, you know, since I've known her, and she's always wanted me to join her in it, and I've been kind of finding excuses not to do it. But now I do it, and it's great. Yeah. And, and you hadn't really done it before this, this relapse and recovery? I, I mean, I had in the past, but a long, you know, long-distant past, but, and I hadn't really, um, yeah, I hadn't really been doing it. Now, so it just kind of got me back into it again. Um, prayer is important to me. And I make a daily practice of that now. Uh, again, that was something I slacked off on dropped and uh, found my way back there. So, you know, I mean, prayer, meditation, I, I would describe it as prayer rather than meditation. I don't, I'm not very good at meditating. 
I do have, uh, you know, after, after doing yoga, I, I certainly meditate for at least five minutes, maybe ten minutes, and uh, try and do some uh, visualization or something like that, just to relax me. Um, but the prayer itself is important. And, um, you know, I think of, and I'm not alone in this at all, um, addiction as a spiritual illness, or alcoholism as a spiritual illness, and a spiritual illness requires a spiritual recovery. And, um, and that can take many forms for, for many different people. For me, it, it's a sort of a reconnection with my Christian roots. And so I follow, I follow that path. And uh, I find it immensely helpful. So that's, that's the, you know, I suppose uh, the, the yoga is a physical um, aspect and the prayer is the spiritual or mental, perhaps. Well, the spiritual aspect, the mental aspect, um, not doing so well on that actually. I think I, I, I need to be pushing myself a bit more mentally, um, learning things, learning new things is uh, something that I'm not doing a lot of at the moment. I'd like to get back into that. So. See, I see. You think learning and learning processes will help. Learning is really important to me. I mean, it's not that I don't learn. I learn all the time. Um, I learn when I teach uh, greatly, but. Within a limited field, you know, I teach in a limited field, so I'm learning in a limited field, and I'd like to expand on that a bit more. So I've got, you know, you, you asked me a, a question about um, ambitions, I think, or something, wasn't it? And I mm -hmm. said, I don't really have them. Um, and funnily enough, I'm going to quote Ron Jeffries here. I saw a tweet, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, that said, I don't have a purpose. I have many things I want to do. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but... I thought that's kind of like me, you know. I don't, I don't really have ambitions or, or a great sense of purpose. I mean, I have a sense of purpose. I don't have a purpose. I think there's a difference. I do have a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, so I'm rambling away here. Where was I going with this, Richard? Take me no, back. we were talking about the, the elements of your recovery. You talked about yeah. yoga being physical. Yeah. You learning. talked about, I was talking about spiritual learning. and then yeah. mental and associated with learning. Yeah. yeah. So I do, I do have. Uh, you know, a desire to, to study theology more, in, more intensely. I've been um, self-studying for about 10 years or so, actually, um, but I'd like to do something more formal, perhaps, you know, um, do a, a master's um, in theology, something like that. Um, so uh, that's sort of on the cards, but I'm not doing it right now. Mm. It's something I'd like to do. Um, but that would take, you know, sort of the, the, be on the... I, I talk about physical, spiritual, mental. I think that I said that I, I feel comfortable in my spirituality. I, I, I attend local um, uh, church meetings and uh, do yoga every day. But I'm not learning that much outside of my field at the moment. Okay. And I'd like to. And how about therapy? I mean, my, my ears pricked up then. You mentioned you'd done it. I mean, is that... Yeah, I mean, in, in, in those rehab centres, it's mostly, mostly group therapy. Mm. Uh, it's mostly, you know, sharing and identifying with other people's stories and uh, uh, I suppose getting feedback or something like that. Um, but learning new ways of being through hearing the experiences of others. It's, it's quite an unusual thing. It's, it's very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, those, most of those treatment centers now are rooted in 12-step um, principles. Yeah. So they sort of use that as a guide, I guess. And, um, but they're not, they're not the same as going out to um, like meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that. But there's similarities in, in the conversations. Um, yeah. But, and there was some one-on-one -on -one therapy that I, to be honest, I didn't find it that useful. <laughs> 
And, you know, I'm sort of a... That's another thing I am learning, actually, at the moment. I'm learning about human-givens therapy. Human-givens. Human-givens, yeah. Okay. Human-givens therapy, uh, which is an absolutely fascinating field. And um, it resonates greatly with me, that the principles they work on and the ideas they have resonates really deeply with me and my ideas. And um, it kind of, I don't want to go too much into this, but it, to me it sort of surfaces what I've always felt is wrong with um, psychoanalysis and many forms of therapy actually and how they are actually quite destructive. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the therapy I was receiving, the one-on-one therapy, was, it wasn't harmful, but it wasn't particularly helpful. Um, you know, and I, I found from reading some of the human givens work, particularly the one on addiction, uh, to be far more helpful. So it's human givens as in given. Given, yeah. Yeah, the given. human givens are um, a set of needs and a set of resources we have to meet those needs. So they've identified, you know, kind of a, a group of needs that every person has to have fulfilled in order to be happy and healthy. Okay. You know, things like a sense of purpose, community, um, privacy would be one of them, uh, status would be one. So it's a set of needs. Um, but what's interesting about it is that they don't just talk about what our needs are, they talk about what our resources are, our innate resources to meet those needs. And it's the innate resources that get damaged, and when the resources are damaged, the needs are unmet and we fall into depression, anxiety, addiction, um, and various other physical illnesses as well. Um, and there's a belief among a lot of people who study this now, including you know, um, GPs and, and other people in the medical profession and helping professions, that when our needs are fully met, we won't actually get ill. Now, that probably has to be put to the test over a, a number of decades to be shown to be true, but um, it, intuitively, for me, intuitively, it sounds, um, it sounds right, you know, it sounds true. And, uh, Reminds me of that the book Lost Connections. Have you come across that? that so no. There's a journalist and an author, and he, he had a similar message that the work he'd done studying mm. this was depression and anxiety was that there are certain needs that we must have fulfilled in order to not have depression and anxiety. Mm. And if we get those needs met, then. Right, same then, thing. Then, it then might be, might so, be, so this yeah. sounds very similar, yeah. It might well be. Yeah. Uh, and. And so he put a big emphasis on the environment of the individual as being right. key in, Absolutely, yeah. in someone's mental stability rather than yeah. you know, chemicals in the brain mm. or other, other factors. Yeah, it sounds very similar. What's the book called? It's called Lost Connections. Um, cool. Yeah, and he had a lot of press. <coughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's maybe yeah. Worth, worth checking worth out. In fact, I, tr- I wanted to get him on. In fact, I pitched him to come on this, ah, <laughs> on this right, podcast. Right. So if he ever shows up, I'll yeah. send you the episode. Uh, yeah, so that's it. But because certainly the the therapy that I've done has been very much individually based, and it's all about me and my past mm. and my history and, mm. and what I need to release release in terms of trauma. So it's very interesting to hear that perspective that um, it's not so much about the you know the the individual's past. Perhaps maybe it's more yeah. about their present and their needs. Well, your your past informs who you are, but it's the dwelling on the past. And the reliving of the past that's destructive, you know. So constantly going back and trying to recall all these. I heard it was a story. It was um, someone goes to get their tire mended because the tire burst, and the mechanic says to them, "What we need to do is the two of us 
We need to walk back along the path that your car took uh, until we find the point where the tire burst. And then if we find the nail or the piece of glass that burst your tire, we'll pick it up, we will embrace it and we will forgive it. But that's not going to mend the tire, right? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And I tell you what I've done going back to, I didn't expect us to get here, but this point I've done going back to the past has definitely not been about forgiveness. Right. So it's, it's all been about healing, yeah. um, whatever there is to heal, reliving absolutely, expressing what I couldn't express, grieving the need that wasn't met back then as an access to being healthier in the mm. present. Um, so that and that and my experience of that has has been, and it's been a recovery and, yeah. and less of it actually because I have a background with twelve step work and so on. Oh. Less of a need for those mechanisms over time. Right. That's not to say that I still don't have needs for you know community and, and mm. connection and all of those other things. Of course I do, but I found that my my ability to be stable has improved massively mm. um, as a result of doing that. That's really work. cool. Yeah. Um, there's so many different ways that, that one can um, self, do self-improvement, I suppose, yeah. for want of a better term. Um, and different things work for different people. So who knows, you know, follow, we find our own pathway somehow, don't we? Mm. We stumble across these things. And they resonate, some things resonate. And this resonates with me, this human givens yeah. approach. So I'm, I'm, you know, kind of digging in a bit more. Good. There's a lot of there's application of it, not just you know for mental health. Of course, that's its primary um, primary form, but it's also um, I find very useful in, for business. You know, thinking about how we run our organisations, so I kind of I feel like I'm sort of trying to draw in some of those ideas into the, the work that I do as well. In fact, I know that I, I believe I don't know, but I believe that they teach the unit of that on one of the um, coaching courses that many people do. I think it's barefoot coaching. Barefoot coaching? Yeah. I'll say, don't quote me on this, but I'm, quite, I'm speaking live here. So, um, I think it is. I think it's the barefoot coaching. They do, um, uh, they study some of the human givens. I think they partially study. They study the needs. I'm not sure if they study much more than that. Um, but, you know, so it's kind of finding its way into, uh, clearly that's, you know, sort of business oriented. So it seems to be finding its way into other, other forms as well. Um, and I went to a, an interesting one-day seminar on, um, gosh, what was the title of it? It was to do with using those principles for um, negotiating peace in disturbed areas, essentially. So it was about you know, using human givens principles for peace negotiation. Mm. It was pretty, so it's wide-reaching. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, can, I, can, I can see that. And I can also see, see perhaps how how already that exists when I think about the agile retrospective. So obviously you and I somewhat mm. come from that community and, yeah. a, and a centerpiece of the way of organizing teams in, in an agile manner is to have this retrospective, this regular special meeting, if you like, where people discuss and talk about what's working and what's not. And as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking, and that's a potentially a venue or a place where people can discuss what the needs are mm. and what needs are being met and what needs are not being met. And seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. it sort of that's. It seems yeah. like a good conversation to have. It probably yeah, doesn't it happen very often. Doesn't happen very often, but perhaps does happen <coughs> some of the time. And to mm. the extent to that those meetings are effective, is the extent to which they address yeah. some of those, perhaps. 
yeah. in terms of in terms of the health of the team. Mm. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, and I, my, my own perspective there is though, whilst I can see that that conversation may be kind of allowable in the context, I think the personal history conversation is a perhaps a little more taboo in, in the workplace. Well, it is, isn't it? Yeah, I think that it it makes people uncomfortable and you know sometimes when you reveal too much about yourself there's uh, an edge of violence to it actually and uh, that's always made me cautious in the past it's like sometimes people just don't know what to do with that kind of information and so it feels it feels like um, a burden uh, so it, one has to be cautious i think about how you reveal things and perhaps who you reveal them to rather than just um bleeding everything out you know to, to anyone who wants to listen, because we know those kinds of people, right? We've all met someone like that, and they become very quickly tedious, sadly. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense of um, people want to avoid them, you know. Because mm. yeah. it's not a conversation, that's why I think it's a dumping. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But it is important, so having said that, you know, that's, that's one side of it, but it is important to for us to start having the courage to talk about who we are in the workplace. Um, and who we are is, you know, very complex. You know, we're not just our job titles. Obviously we're not. There's so much more to any person. And um, we don't take the time to find out because it's a taboo thing, really. You know, we don't really want to ask people about their faith. We don't want to ask them about, you know, their absences from work and what's going on for them. They sort of, dis people disappear sometimes, you know. Well, they're having health issues, you know, and you know, having been around the, the alcohol and <laughs> alcoholic and drug addict community for many years, I know many of those people who disappear from work for periods of time, and I know where they've gone, you know, <laughs> and um, and their workmates don't, and that's sad. I think, you know, they just sort of like don't want to don't want to ask those questions and don't want to talk about it. And uh, I wrote about that, as you know, but I also wrote about faith in the workplace and how that's something else people don't want to really want to bring up or don't want to talk about. You know, we see that people, you know, some people have outward appearances of their faith and um, we don't necessarily want to talk to them about it, ask them questions about it. I do, actually, I do, I say we don't, I do actually want to do that. I like asking people questions about it and no one has been offended by my questions yet. Um, but there is a sense that, oh, we better not go there because they might be upset or, you know, it might be, what do I say? What if, you know, it's just like we don't know how to talk about this stuff. So I'd like to encourage it more. Mm. And I think it may, uh, I, but I do think we're, we're at a moment in time where all of this is opening up. I mean, I saw a, a mm. post on LinkedIn with a, a partner of a big four firm sharing about anxiety and yeah. this journey with anxiety. So something is shifting in your very powerful shares about clearly your, your relapse and so on. I mean, these yeah. are, to me, I'm, I'm seeing this more and more. As, You're right. There's an yeah. opening in yeah. in the workplace that's going on. I mean, and, and it seems to have happened in pockets of society as a precursor to this, and now it's, it's really hitting mm. in the workplace, I think. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, actually, unknown to me at the time, I saw it later, was um, revealing the story of his depression on Twitter, interestingly enough, in, in a series of tweets. <laughs> um, but that was his form, you know, his, the way he chose to do it. And, um, and that was interesting. And you're right, I mean, more and more people, you know, the whole neurodiversity movement is about that. It's people just being who they are, right? You know, I'm being autistic or having Asperger's syndrome or 
whatever you want to class it as, you know, kytextia kytex is a, a, a more recent term for that whole spectrum. Uh, context blindness, it means. Okay. Uh, and it, it goes from left brain to right brain, which is really interesting. There's sort of right brain uh, context blindness as much as left brain. The autistic Asperger sits on the left brain side more than the, uh, the you know, sort of schizophrenia is on the extreme end of the right side. Okay. What about pattern matching, right? So really in a nutshell, um, we're pattern matching creatures, right? We, we, this is how we learn, and this is how, um, this is how we create empathy, for example, and this is how we um, know when danger is occurring. We're matching patterns all the time. We're born with templates and we match these patterns. And um, there are some people that are not very good at matching patterns. They don't know how to do it. Their, their pattern matching mechanism is a bit broken. And um, they veer towards uh, Asperger's, and uh, that's why people on that side of the spectrum, people say they don't um, feel empathy. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the sort of outward appearance. They don't seem to empathize. Um, and on the right side, what's interesting, and no one really goes there that much, is um, it's over pattern matching. It's matching patterns that don't really exist. Okay. Right. So you're 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 creating you're creating patterns. So, People who are very kind of um, convinced by things like numerology and stuff, and every time they see a number, they're matching it. And so there's this, this, this kind of, of Alex Jones and in the States in Flow Wars. Right, I don't, I don't, true. yeah, I mean, it's that kind of thing. But if you, you know, in voices you hear, we all, we all mm. you know, our, our minds talk to us all the time, and we know that it's our mind talking to us. But if you don't, you start pattern matching and say, well, this is a message from, you know, some other being that's speaking to me. And, and, and so it veers over to schizophrenia. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it's, um, we're laughing about it, but of course, for the people in that place, it's obviously not a nice place. But most of us are sort of like in the centre of that spectrum. We veer a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left. We'd probably go um, over to the right-hand side through lack of sleep and stuff like that. You know, if we're sleep-deprived, we, we start hallucinating, right? Mm, or certain substances. Yeah, or certain substances, because, you know, our brain... I may or may not have Our brains, uh, you know, need, need, to, um, need to dream. And if yeah. we're not allowing ourselves to sleep, or we're taking substances that stop us sleeping, or substances that change yeah. the brain chemistry or something, then we, we veer to that side. And, um, so we're kind of back and forth on it. Some people are more extreme that way, more extreme that way. Right. Um, and, and that's another example of yeah, neurodiversity in the workplace, yeah, to, to accommodate and understand, yeah. and explore and talk about. Talk about those things, yeah. yeah, just recognize them and just don't be afraid of it. You know, and people are, I remember, um, I don't know, it was about 2007, it was at an Agile conference and uh, there was, I was running a, a, an interactive session with Lisa Atkins at the time and a guy came up to us afterwards and said, I wanted to come to your session but I really, really struggle with this. He said, I, I, I suffer from Asperger's syndrome and I find this kind of work really difficult because I don't know what's going on half the time. I don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, I can't, it was a long time ago, that conversation, 12 years ago or something. But it was kind of interesting. And to me, that was the first time someone had openly said to me, I have Asperger's syndrome. I've, I've met before that many people that I thought had Asperger's syndrome, but I didn't dare ask and they never said it. You know? And so there's a lot of sort of denial about it or just ignorance, I think. From, but now it's changed. That that whole landscape has changed a lot in that time, in those you know twelve thirteen years. So um, which is good, right? It's, it's definitely a good thing. Well, I think what is it allows us for more diverse teams, isn't it? And then it potentially does, more yeah. creative teams yeah. and, and and greater connection between humans, which yeah. increases the trust and as people experiment more potentially. So I can, mm. I mean, I'm riffing on what comes top of mind when I think about the benefits of. 
opening uh, up more at a personal level in the workplace. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if people will study this a little bit and we'll start to get some data about around around this and how it may help organisations. Mm. I mean, I think that intuitively, I, I mean, I think I yeah. think certainly there have been studies on diversity of teams. I saw. Um, I can't remember where I read this, but something about teams that have more women in tend to be more creative and more successful right. than teams that don't. I thought, well, someone else said, was the, was the link for the data on this? You know, and that's the question I wanted to ask, of course. But it was interesting, you know, it wouldn't have just been made up, I don't think. Someone had read that yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I'd, I'd seen the study that the guy who does this, the, the marshmallow game, have you come across that? Where you mm -hmm. build a marshmallow tower over yeah. iterations. Yeah, excuse me, I'm just coughing. And he's kept records of he's run this this, this these workshops multiple times. Mm. That when they have the CEO groups, uh, for better or worse, tend to be male dominated. Mm. Yeah, uh, tend to get beaten by the CEOs plus secretaries for better uh, or worse, often man, yeah, female yeah. mix. And and so we see it see it in that context mm. that the the diverse teams outperform. Them. That's interesting. He also says that children outperform adults in those exercises. Oh really? Yeah. Yes, I can imagine yeah. they're playful. And well, they're more playful and they're more experimental, so they will just keep trying things uh, in a faster iterative way. You know. Yeah. Human beings are naturally um, iterative. <laughs> you know, the, the whole empirical process that they talk about in, in Scrum is it's just a natural way of, of human beings doing things, learning. Yeah. That's what we do. And we I we, we're taught not to do it essentially mm. in schools. Um, so. Let's talk about Scrum for a minute. Going back to well, should we actually just? I'm just wondering if for, for those people who've, who've never heard the word agile, or if they have, it doesn't have right. a special meaning. Or Scrum, and that maybe we should just take a step yeah, back and explain for somebody sure. who's I don't know running a hair salon what what we mean by agile, and then perhaps what we mean by Scrum. Yeah. Well, what we mean by agile, and what, what people mean by agile, so it seems to have a great variation. Um, Agile means to move quickly and lightly, you know, and to, to be able to turn fast. That's what it means, right? And um, that's essentially what we're talking about is, you know, running a business in that way. It's, um, how do you run a business that has, I think uh, Craig Larman has a nice way of describing it, is this turn on a dime for the price of a dime or something like that, you know, the cost of a dime. I don't know what it is, you know, the dime, in, in, for people who don't know, is a tiny little coin in the USA. Um, but again, it's uh, you know, sort of like mountain goats like landing on tiny, tiny areas and spinning around and, and doing it so it doesn't cost too much. Uh, that's agility in, in business. Uh, Scrum is a framework that helps people do this, essentially. It's, you know, it just recommends a, a, a way of working that allows you to learn very quickly from what you've just done, from one moment to the next or one week to the next. So it's a framework that allows you to be agile. Agile's become, uh, it's been nominalized, it's become a noun, hasn't it? And uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. A lot of people think that the Agile Manifesto is, is called just that, but in fact it's not called the Agile Manifesto, it's called uh, the Manifesto for Agile Software Development, which is an utterly different title altogether because Agile in that correct title is an adjective. Um, but it's been, as I said, nominalized. And when you nominalize something, uh, any kind of adjective or verb, you can sell it, basically. You can't sell verbs and adjectives, but you can sell nouns. 
you can put yeah. them in a box. Right, and so for those people who are not familiar with the history, so what you're saying there is so that Agile came out of the software community because that need to be Agile and turn on a dime in the was, really was most prevalent yeah. within software teams. Yeah. And so they developed all these techniques and ways of operating and initially it was about a, a way of operating or a way of being and then now it's become a thing. Yeah. The, the, exactly. the Agile manifesto, the thing. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, well, you know, it's good that people are recognizing a need to work differently. Um, but sadly, in a lot of cases, it's not so much the work that's different, it's just the labels that are different and the work underneath the labels stays pretty much the same. So, um, there's a long way to go. And I'm sure there were businesses and industries that were not software that were doing stuff like this or have been doing stuff like this for decades and uh, have, you know, had much more humane ethical approaches to work, um, giving people more autonomy. I mean, all, this is all part of, you know, you, if you want to become agile, you have to do all those things, essentially. You have to create an autonomous work workplace um, where people doing the work can make decisions about the work they do. Because if you have to wait for a manager or a senior manager to make a decision, you can't be agile. So this is the, these are some of the things that have to occur for agility to, to you know, really exist in an organisation. Which reminds me of a passage in your book, The People's Scrum, uh, that I'd love to read. Now, I'm often described as touchy-feely in my approach to teaching Agile. This term is almost always used as an insult. And while I can take it with a pinch of salt, the fear and ignorance behind such a statement inevitably makes me sad. I find that too many people throw out that term to describe ways of human engagement they don't really understand. And this seems to be especially true in the software world. It is a way of making light of a form of interaction that many software engineers and related folk find very difficult. Dismissing such interaction as touchy-feeling or soft is a way of avoiding it. Quite simply, it is a cop-out. Our industry harbours a perception that ordering people around, setting schedules, micro-directing, threatening people with demotion and termination, and generally being fierce is a hardcore approach to management. While the approach of listening, trusting, fostering healthy dialogue, promoting self-organisation and resolving conflicts is considered soft, how topsy-turvy, it is surely the other way around. Yeah, I wrote that nine years ago. Um, and I don't actually hear the term touchy-feely as much these days, but um, soft skills is certainly used um, all the time for the kind of work that I do and you probably do too um, and many people I know do and it I think it does it is born of fear it's born of fear you know that's really it um, but there is you know a history to this idea of soft in, in science they talk about soft sciences and hard sciences and that's also a distinction I really don't like um, as if you know social sciences are can't be nailed down, but somehow physics and chemistry and biology can be. Now, I mean, there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, there are certain things that have been proven to be true. But when people talk about, um, you know, I don't know, they say like the science is in on this. You know, you can't argue about it. It's, it feels uh, very limiting. It's a very limiting way of looking at the world. And of course, science is never in. It's never done. This is what the meaning of the word is, is it's constant exploration, really, and discovery of the world that we live in. And that changes all the time with new information. Um, so all science is soft, but it's all malleable, pliable, and it changes when new information comes. And 
Um, if it was hard and fixed and never in changing, then we would still be running by, you know, Newton's theories of the world and uh, wouldn't would have um, burnt um, anyone else at the stake. <laughs> so um, happily, it's not that way, and, and science is not hard. And but and going back to business, you know, um, using you know the word hard, of course, in, in a slightly different way, uh, playing around with the meaning of the word. It, it's um, it's very hard, it's very difficult to run a business in a humane way because it's not our default. Our default is to um, tell other people what to do in a way to get results and that comes from long history of the education system, the army going back even further, uh, feudal systems, you know, lordships and it's, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries of, of that way of behaving. Um, and only very tiny pockets of, of difference occurring. And um, I don't know. For example, I, you know, I don't know much about the history of the USA starting, but a lot of the um, people that went there were went there because they were um, to get away, essentially, from persecution. Uh, religious people, you know, who had slightly different beliefs to the mainstream religion, um, perhaps what you might call softer religions. Uh, people who didn't believe in the hierarchy of the church um, were persecuted, essentially, and uh, had to get away. So, um, you know, we have, a, we have a history of... Um, we have a history of working uh, and, and behaving in a way that is around control and getting other people to do meet our needs for us or do what we want them to do. And so it's very, very difficult to change that in the business world. So that's why you, you know, say this is the, the hardcore approach, as we call it, is to sort of be strict and stern and tell people what to do and order people around. And, and that's the persona of the boss, and that's the, the, the caricature of the boss, is to behave like that. Uh, you don't get a caricature of the boss who's um, humane and kind uh, and treats people with respect and listens to them and asks their opinion and gives them autonomy or creates an environment, rather, where autonomy can occur don't really hear about that very much um, because it's really, really difficult. It's hard, right? That's the hard thing. So there's a sort of paradox in calling it soft skills. Uh, they're soft in a way that they're gentle. Yeah, they are. It's a gentle approach to work. And why is it so hard to be soft? <laughs> why is it so hard to be gentle? Um, I think just because we're taught not to be. We're taught that it's, um, it's a flaw somehow. You know, you, if you're gentle, we, we operate in the business world on this principle, nice guys finish last. And that sort of sums up the whole way we operate in the business world, just that one phrase, last, nice guys finish last. So in other words, don't be nice, don't be kind. Um, don't stop and listen to other people because you get crushed. Um, and if everyone believes that, then it becomes true. That's how we behave and that is what happens. So that makes it even harder to step outside of the norm, right, and do something different. But somebody has to, you know, some few people have to. Someone has to, and then there's a first follower. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that we're, we're part of a movement, you and I, and, and, and thousands of other people, um, possibly millions by now, who say this is not okay anymore. We don't, we don't want our workplaces to be like this. We're looking for something different. Um, but we haven't reached that tipping point by any means. You know, we're far, far from that. Um, but 
we're, we're, we're heading in that direction. So it's encouraging. I saw a report of a, of a guy who runs an electric truck company in the States. Mm -hmm. And he had, as part of the setup of the company, gives everybody 20% time, so a mm. fifth of their working week to work on themselves. Mm. Which I thought was extraordinary. It's beautiful, yeah. 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 And an example of this shift. Mm. So that's quite different to Google's 20% time, which is go away and invent something that will make us lots of money. <laughs> I mean, that in itself was innovative back then, you know, whenever that was 10, 15 years ago. But yeah, to go and spend 20% of your time working yourself, that's going to create a great company, ultimately, isn't it? I believe. Yeah. There's no, there's no real evidence that we actually have to work 40 hours a week, and that's better. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. Um, back in the 70s, when uh, all of the strikes were going on and there was no electricity, they had to reduce the working week to three days. I don't know if you remember this, you weren't born probably. Um, Three-day working week. And when they measured productivity after that, productivity went down. But it didn't go down by 40%, it went down by about 10%. 15, I think 15 was the number. And down by about 15%. So that clearly shows that we don't have to work 40-hour weeks to be productive. Um, and then you can get into the whole idea of, of um, what are being called bullshit jobs. Jobs that are created just to keep people busy, essentially. And um, there's a whole philosophy behind all of that, you know, which is really that um, people need to be kept busy because if they're idle, uh, they start thinking. And when people start thinking, governments get scared. Oh, this is right. the idea, keep, keep everybody, the yeah. communist idea, keep everybone in the bread line and hungry and, you know, they're not going to uh, you know, yeah, worry be too much about criticism. Right, and, I mean, it's, I suppose it's similar to that, but in, in the capitalist society, it's, it's keep everyone occupied um, thinking they're useful and um, then they won't have idle time. But uh, Bertram Russell wrote a wonderful essay back in, the, I don't know when it was, the 20s, 30s maybe, called In Praise of Idleness. Um, and he and I think Milton Friedman also had this belief that um, even at that time people um, were working too much and didn't need to. You know, that automation was, was taking over it and um, long before computers of course and would replace people and, um, and that was good because people would then have more leisure time and they have more creative time and there could be more art in the world and you know, more time for people to just enjoy themselves. Um, but it didn't work out that way. We're still, you know, desperately trying to get jobs. It's the biggest, it's the biggest humiliation to people to be unemployed. You know, if you go to a, any kind of gathering and someone says, what do you do, and you don't have a job, it's, it's like someone's thrust a knife into you. It's a painful, painful question. And I've experienced it, and I, I really, I, I have a hard time explaining what I do when I do work, you know, but, <laughs> but it, you know, I don't know if you've experienced unemployment or periods of it, but it is, it's, uh, it, you're made to feel like a second class or third class citizen, you know, and just people don't know how to respond to you. It's mm. the same idea, you know, if you say, it's like saying I'm a drug addict or something, you know, I'm unemployed. Hasn't the weather been nice <laughs> of late? Because <laughs> yeah, no one knows what to say to that. So, you know, it's not something to celebrate, this, this fact that we don't have to work, so people create jobs. Right, and I suppose I'm in two minds there, because I've also encountered people who trust fund, I've got to remember one, one particular person who, who lived off their trust fund and, and had a pretty empty life and it, mm. and it looked pretty bleak for her, despite the fact she, you know, got six figures a year from this trust fund, didn't really yeah. have to do anything and lived a, a, a superb life, and I wonder how much of that is 
down to the way society treats her because they don't see her as having value because she's not working or something inherent in the fact that she wasn't working. It might, it suffering. certainly might be that, but I mean, it, ultimately it's just lack of meaning, isn't it? Yeah. Or a sense of purpose again. So um, if we don't, it's one of the human givens. Um, if we don't have that, we struggle and we get depressed and we, we feel lost and we don't know who we are. You know? But it's not about having a job. She could go out and get a job and that might satisfy her, but there's plenty of other things she could do too, I'm sure. Right. You know, and many people in that, that same situation. So there is um, a lot of, uh, you know, when people win the lottery or something, yeah. suddenly their life suddenly becomes empty because they've lost their purpose. You know, they just don't need to work. And, but it's not, you know, it's not that we have to do jobs and get paid for it. I mean, doing work can, be, it can take many forms. Right. You, know, um, you, you can be an artist and you're working. Not getting paid for it, well, that'd be great, you know, if you didn't have to. So, or you could work two days a week, or if you'd all work three days a week again. I don't know. This <laughs> we, we need to reinvent the way at the workplace, and it's not not in the way the Lou's talking about. I think it's uh, much greater than that. And let's just say for those who mm. aren't familiar with Frederick Lelou, mm. who wrote Reinventing Organisations, you don't you don't agree that it's the way that. He's well, I think it's it's lovely uh, that. You know, there are companies out there who are operating in a different way to the norm and that he took the time to find out who they are and what they're doing and um, pulled some ideas out of it to say these are some common elements that all these organisations have. And um, it shows that you can uh, work in this way and still be a profitable company. And I think the fear of a lot of people is if you don't, if you start doing all this touchy-feely soft stuff, then you're not going to make any money. And uh, his book basically proves that actually that's not, not the case at all. It's actually quite the opposite. You know, one company in there that um, they've found a way of operating that has made them really, really successful. It's in the healthcare industry. And um, the CEO goes out and teaches other, he teaches his competitors what he did so they can do it too. Now that's, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty great, isn't it, really? Um, that's really, that's true collaboration over competition. Right, which reminds me of uh, tri the tribal leadership group, where the book, where it talks about the level five, right. which is, you know, yeah. it's not we're great, it's life's great. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not great. about us versus them, it's yeah. life is great, let's celebrate it, how can yeah, we all you know, Dave Logan's, Dave Logan's book, Tribal Leadership, is um, it's also an interesting book, and his five levels of tribal leadership align pretty much exactly with Lulu's five colours. Yeah, this, and this is what I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. They, they overlap, essentially, mm. you can place one on top of the other, and they absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so what, what Lelou calls a teal organisation is the level of um, life is great. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Where to go from, uh, from, from reinventing the workplace? Um, what's interesting to me about this conversation is I perhaps thought that we'd talk about your, your, your take on Scrum and, and Agile and so on, but it feels like it... I suppose as a community, in a sense, we've graduated beyond beyond those questions of how yeah. should we run a software team into yeah. actually what should the work workplace look like. I think it feels so. like that where the, that's where the conversation is going now. Yeah, I mean it's it's inevitable, isn't it? Because you can't do these things in isolation. Everything's connected, and um, you have to look at the whole, um, and you have to have to do anything. I suppose <laughs> I like to, um, you know, I I. I I was a software developer, that was you know, what I was for many years, and um, I didn't like the way that uh, I worked. It didn't feel right to me, the, way, the, the systems we had in place, and so 
when I discovered other ways of working, I embraced it because it just fit with the way that I saw life and had done other kinds of work in my life, you know. I did you work probation officer, right? Well, not probation officer, no, but I did work in, I, right. I did work um, doing um, facilitation for young people who were in the probation system. So people who are, you know, um, narrowly escaping Borstal or... Do you even use that word anymore? Bullshit. So, bolster the yeah. people in the not in the UK. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's no, it's in the it's UK. A young offenders. Yeah, yeah, but for people who are not familiar yeah. with bolster, it's a young offenders yeah. institution. Yeah. Um, so I worked in that field. Yeah, and I also worked in um, the publishing industry for a long time as a, as a graphic artist, and that was a totally collaborative environment. Everyone did what they needed to do to get things done. You know, it's a very light touch management. I think I was actually technically a manager in that company that I was thinking of, but. Ever feel that way? I was never telling anyone what to do. You know, my, I think my job as a manager, I've been a manager in that environment, I've been a manager in the software, and the, the thing that I focused on as a manager was to find people that were way better than me at doing the work that needed to be done. And I think that's the, uh, the advice I would give any manager is just to find people better than you. That's what Richard Branson talks yeah. about. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Because there's the other aspect, the other side of it is the fear side where you don't want people who are better than you because they might. Take your job, but then good. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that job, probably. Uh, so yeah, we're going all over the place again, Richard. It's, it's great. Um, I, I love it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So as, as we start to to wrap this up, I'm just interested to hear from you in terms of who's who's shaped your career and your thinking. I mean, we've obviously mentioned a few thinkers so far. Is there anybody else we haven't mentioned who has been a big influence for you? Um, Peter Block who wrote um, Flawless Consulting many years ago. I don't even know when that book was written. 80s, perhaps. Um, and he wrote a book called The Answer to How is Yes. The Answer to How is, is yes. yes. Yeah, it's a lovely title. I mean, this is based on the idea that people uh, frequently ask how questions. And so when I, when I teach Scrum, for example, people say, yes, but how can I do this in my organisation? How can I? And his response to that is, yes, you can. <laughs> and you have to figure out how, because I can't possibly know, you know, because I don't know your context, I don't know your difficulties, I don't know the products you make, I don't know the people you work with, so how can I respond how? Uh, I can't. I can't tell you how. But I can tell you it's possible, and so that's really the sort of principle of that book. Right. But Peter Block's work and, and his approach to organisational change is um, way ahead of its time, I think. You know, so. He's still up there, I think he's an old man now. But he, yeah, he's been a great influence on me from from a business perspective and consulting perspective. Right. How to work with people in organisations. You know, he, he's one of his things he talks about is meetings, and he says that people feel that when they go to meetings, they have to get everything done and get through an agenda, and they never take time to know who's in the meeting. They don't know each other. So he said, it's okay to sit there and not get anything done in a meeting and just get to know who's with you, who's, who do you work with, stuff like that, you know, and it's just so counter. And yet people hire him and pay him huge amounts of money to come and help their organisations. But, you know, he talks about this stuff in a way that people kind of go, that's ridiculous. Who would do that? Who's got the time for that? I remember I sat in a workshop in that way once where I had people as a personal maps exercise, which comes from another... Mm. Agile thinker, Jürgen Apollo, he mm. popularised it, where you draw a mind map of yourself. And I had this workshop of people who had mainly worked together. We started the workshop with them all creating personal maps. And at the start of it, it was like, Richard, what the hell are we doing all this? We all know each other, you know, mm. know each other, Teddy, what are you having to be drawing these pictures? And yet, 
it's uncovered a bunch of stuff about individuals in the room that they just did not know about each yeah. other. And it created a context and a connection before we got into the work that was was very powerful. And I'm sure made a difference in the effectiveness of that team. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, all that stuff, yeah. People don't know how useful much of that work is until they start to engage in it. You know, it's just, it just sounds silly a lot of the time. That's why I don't talk about stuff very much. I just get people to do things when I'm teaching and just try not to explain. I've started, I find myself explaining something. I said, you know what, I, I don't know how to explain this. We're just going to do it and see what happens. And, uh, and it's always interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that's, so that's right. And, and thwarts the next question I had in my head, which was, okay, Tobias, if I'm, if I'm running a business or I'm leading a team or I'm in some position of influence in a company, or maybe no influence in a company, and I want to see my workplace become more humane, become more agile. Where do I start? Where, where's, where? where do you start? <clears throat> this is interesting. Is recently, I've been in a conversation on LinkedIn about um, the phrase that coaches very often use about meeting people where they are. It's really important to meet people where they are. And uh, I'll quote Ron Jeffries again on this one. And who's Ron Jeffries for people? Oh, Ron Jeffries is um, one of the original signees of the Agile Manifesto and one of the original um, uh, team members of the XP team that Kent Beck was in and that inspired the Extreme Programming book. So he's a sort of well Which was one of the early books. Yeah, a very early book. Back in the, the 90s. I think the book came out in 99. The first paper was written in 97 or something like that, I think. Six or seven. Um, and the words of Ron Jeffries, what was I, where was I going with this? He said, if you meet people where they are, you'll work with them where they are, and when you leave, they'll still be where they are. And that, I guess, again, that sort of touched me. Um, because I think it's true, and I think that, so how do you start with people? You start, yeah, so, well, yeah, you, you, I mean, start, you, you, might... you don't start that way. You don't start by meeting them where they are. You invite them out somewhere. I mean, I mean out of their comfort zone, you know, I'm using metaphors here, but... Um, where do you start? If you meet them where they are, um, it's usually quite an unhealthy place. And so you probably don't really want to go there. You know, so, and, and people have to be willing to um, take some risk, I think. If they really want to change, they have to take some risk. So the people that really don't want to, they say, you know, I get invitations to come into organisations and say, oh, you've got to come in from some high up person, you know, director of this or chief of that. And so you've got to come in and help me because my, my teams don't know how to be agile. We've got to fix the development department. And so I start asking them questions about who they are and what they do. And I figure out very quickly that it has nothing to do with the development teams at all. It's a management problem. Um, but where they are is um, a myopic vision about the development teams need help. You know, if I go in and agree to do that, uh, I'm not helping the organisation. And I've done that. I go in and I'll... I try and have the conversations and I get, you know, you know I'm, I'm agile, we know all about this, it's the development team's problem. You know, it's just not just once this has happened, it's more, certainly more than once. And um, I work with the development teams and they're usually quite brilliant people and um, they don't have a problem. They have a problem with not knowing what on earth they're working on because no one's telling them, for example, right? There's no clear vision, there's no direction. Um, there's no ability to work collaboratively because the testers are in one building and the developers are in another building and no one's willing to let them, when I suggest, you know, why don't you bring those, oh no, we can't do that. It's just not going to happen. Don't even talk about that again. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, this is meeting people where they are, you know, so I want to invite people out into a place that feels dangerous for them. Um, and then we'll start, then we can start. But if you're not willing to do that, then you're not, 
nothing's really going to change. You know. As a, as a test of their commitment. Basically, yeah. I, I kind of feel that if you want to sit around waiting, then you can wait for someone else. <laughs> it's going to be me. Because <laughs> okay. I'm not going there. It stinks over there. <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, it's not, I get the idea of meeting people where they are. It's about empathy and getting to know someone, to know their, you know, their situation, so you can help them move out of it. But um, I think people need to move out of it to start with. Not knowing where they're going, essentially, just start walking. I have a book at home I'm meaning to read, and it's called We Make the Road by Walking. And it's a theological book, but the, the title is based on a, something that Paolo Freire said. Paolo Freire, are you familiar with him? He wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, which is a, a sort of a, another... Well, I would say he's another influencer, if you go back to that question. Right. He's someone else who's influenced me. And, and also Augusto Boal, who was one of his students who took the ideas into theatre and created Theatre of the Oppressed. And I use Theatre of the Oppressed in many of my workshops, in fact, as a teaching mechanism. Interesting stuff. But you, you, know, you have been... I mean, are you the Agile Jesus? <laughs> That's horrible, Richard. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> no, no, I don't know what you mean by that. Well, I'm hearing theatre of the oppressed and the pedagogy of the oppressed. <laughs> well, I mean, is that something that resonates with you, that idea of you're there for the, for the oppressed or for the... Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you what's interesting. So we talked about my, my background in working with um, basically disenfranchised young people. Right, people who were in the system for one reason or another had been, you know, thrown out of school. Schools wouldn't wouldn't have them. Um, got into you know into crime and stuff like that. So they were really sort of the fringes. Um, and um, part of that is the oppressive system that they were in. You know, there is a, there is oppression around that. The schools are oppressive. They only want you. They have, they want you to comply. Um, it's all about compliance. Being successful at school. And if you don't comply, if you're, you know, someone who thinks differently, um, you're not welcome. You get pushed out. So, and then when you get pushed out, you, who knows where you go, you know. And a lot of these kids had, you know, um, family troubles at home as well. Um, perhaps there was violence going on. There's all kinds of things. But um, there was certainly, uh, there's certainly oppression occurring there. So people were pushed down. Now, when I left that work and I became a software engineer, and uh, I got a job in a big corporation. I started to see that it wasn't that different, actually. And I wrote about that in, in, in the book, in fact. Um, they were getting paid lots of money, software engineers, but they had no voice. You know. Oppression is described by Paolo Freire as monologue where there should be dialogue. It's really as simple as that. Right? So there's a lot of monologue in corporations, which is one way. It comes from the top and it works its way down, uh, and it's a one-way. It's not a conversation. It's a monologue, and you you hear it and you do it, and there's no way of responding. There's just no way. So if my manager tells me to do something and I want to respond to that and challenge it, I can't because he's well. I don't know. I'm just told to do that. You know, you've got to take it up with so and so, but you can't because they're not. There's no. You're not allowed to speak to them. You know? So oppression, right? So there's oppression in the workplace and. Um, so when I started to see that, and I had an opportunity as a manager to start changing things, I started to bring in the work from Boal, Boal's work, into the corporate environment. And I was encouraged to do that by a man called Kurt Peterson, who taught me Scrum, in fact, and was also a Boal student. And uh, he encouraged me to kind of revisit that work. And 
draw from it, you know, because Boal's work was, um, he wasn't working in inner city London like I was, he was working with um, perhaps more serious, far more serious problems of um, dictatorships and uh, people being disappeared and stuff like that. And uh, I'll just go back to the beginning of that part of the conversation there where you, you, you mentioned Jesus in relation to oppression, and that's interesting. Um, if you take Jesus out of the context of Christianity and see him as a teacher, and what he was at the time, he was known as rabbi to most people, um, you could describe Jesus as a freedom fighter, perhaps, um, a revolutionary, if, in, in, in a sense. You know, he was um, uh, preaching a new way of living to people, offering hope, and certainly, absolutely working with oppressed people. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a sermon given to the oppressed, absolutely. Um, there's some very interesting ways of understanding things like turn the other cheek, and I actually talk about that in one of my workshops um, as a way of um, standing up to your oppressor, not a way of being subservient, and it's twisted, it's a twisted meaning to that. Um, so, you know, you could, uh, the, um, Islam faith uh, recognizes Jesus as a prophet, as one of the prophets of God, in the same way that um, Elijah was a prophet, or Amos, or many others. And uh, I, I think really, you know, I, I identify as a Christian, but I'm more interested in Jesus, the living Jesus, rather than the baby Jesus and the dead Jesus. I'm more interested in the living Jesus. Um, and I think that the kind of work that he was doing is, is certainly, uh, I think, the work that um, people need to do today. Um, I, I use the metaphor of Old Testament prophet. It's not Old Testament, but I use the metaphor as Old Testament prophet for scrum master sometimes, because it's about speaking truth to power and helping, um, um, reminding people of their commitments. That's what the prophets did, essentially. It's reminding you that you are God's chosen people and this is your commitment, this is your covenant with God and you're straying from it and you should get back to it. Otherwise, bad things will happen, essentially, right? So um, what are the agreements in an organisation? If an organisation is saying, we want to do Scrum, and they make an agreement about doing Scrum in the organisation, following this framework, using an empirical process, you know, giving autonomy to the team so they can make the decisions they need to make, and they, and they stray from that and they start bringing in their old command and control behaviours. Well, they need a profit, and that's the Scrum Master's job. The Scrum Master has to rise up and say, you made a commitment here, there's an agreement, and we're straying from that agreement. So there's a real parallel in terms of that. And, you know, and, and Jesus was in that line of, of people who were speaking truth to power and reminding people of, well, he was somewhat different in, in the message that he had, but it's not that different, you know, so definitely working with oppressed people. So, you know, there's a lot we can learn I think, in the workplace from the various faiths that we have around us and, and within us. And we shy away from it because it's this fear of offending people, you know. If you quote something from um, the New Testament, are you going to offend anyone who's not a Christian? If you quote something, you're probably a bit safer quoting from the Old Testament because there's at least three faiths that have come out of that. But, um, you know, there's, a, there's always a danger of offending somebody, you know. Um, the atheists are going to be offended by all of it, basically. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate, um, but I think we can... Well, we can I'm, I would consider myself an atheist, and I don't yet take offence. If, 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 sure. if a religious text has got wisdom in it for me, then I'll 
embrace it. Right, and that's great, you know, and I, I, and I wish we could all do that, and, but sometimes we get resistant to it, you know, mm. and, uh, feel that it's, people are forcing their religion on us or something mm. like that. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? If, if someone who's known, this is a confirmation bias thing, if someone who's known to be a devout Christian quotes something from the Bible, you're going to go, oh, he's pushing his religion on me. Um, but if an atheist quotes it, says, there's some wisdom in this, let me tell you, you know, and everyone knows he's an atheist, they go, oh, that's interesting, yeah, there is some good stuff in there. So it depends who says it and what our, what our bias is in the first place, right? But, but yeah, there's definitely loads of, loads of, um, loads of learning that we, we miss out on, I think, when we kind of like put all that aside. Um, certainly not, not, just from, not just from the Abrahamic religions, but from the world religions in general. Well, in this, in the, well, yes, I agree with that. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Jordan Peterson's message. If you come across Jordan no, Peterson, he's a philosopher, psychologist, um, and has become relatively famous online for some of his clashes. He did a big interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4, which blew up. Mm. Um, but one of his messages is we're, we're running from these faith-based scripts, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even the atheists, most of the well-known atheists, their philosophy, their values are heavily um, influenced by, by the religions. So mm. it's, uh, and there are these archetypal ideas that exist in, across, across all cultures mm-hmm. that um, powerfully shape how we behave and think about the world, and just as a fact. Mm. Right? And so perhaps there is something to be said for just acknowledging those stories and those yeah. metaphors and, and the history. And, and well, the exactly. I mean, they are stories and they are metaphors, and there's a lot of power in story and there's a lot of power in metaphor, you know, and um, we ignore it to our peril, I think. You know, really, so much that we can draw from that. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment by Rob Parkinson called, uh, I think it's called Stories for Transformation, something like that. It's just the power of the tale-telling and the metaphors that are contained in there and how they can touch people and change them, you know, without coercion, without manipulation. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, and I think the original means of dealing with human complexity, you could argue, is, is through storytelling. Mm. Uh, yeah. And of course, we're, we're engaging it all the time, even when we don't like we are telling stories. We do, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But they're not very rich, the stories we tell ourselves, actually. We, 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 we err towards um, graphical explanation rather than <laughs> hidden meaning, I think. <laughs> We need to find a bit more of that. Yeah. Well, and that's also a movement right now, is, is this idea of bringing storytelling as more of a, a skill in the yeah. workplace and something to be yeah. um, celebrated and mm. incorporated. And, and it's, all, it's, all, all, it's all great, you know, all of that, that movement we're talking about of, of people. Just, I think it's um, a period in history where people are waking up. Actually, I think that's what it is. I think we were asleep for a long time. <laughs> You know, through the, I don't know, 80s, 90s. Maybe after the, um, the 60s revolution, the peace revolution, I think, that people went back to sleep a bit after that. Didn't really want things to change. And then um, things got kind of rooted into the status quo through the 80s and 90s with certain world leaders. Um, and now we're, we're not asleep anymore. People are slowly waking up and saying, I don't... 
I challenge this, I question it, I, I want something different. My life isn't meaningless, my life is empty. You know, a, but one of the interesting things they found out, oh, where did I read this, I can't remember, but it was about um, the suicide rate uh, is rising. And one of the core reasons for this, and they did this, it was a study they did, I think in, in, um, I think in the health industry, looking at the um, suicide rate across different levels of people in the organisation. There was an expectation that the people with high pressure jobs would be the ones that were more likely to top themselves or suffer from depression and stuff like that. There certainly was some of that, but the majority of people who were um, committing suicide were people lower down in the organisation. And the, the difference between um, different levels of people was the amount of autonomy they had. So the less autonomy people had, the more they got depressed and depression led to inevitably, in many cases, to suicide. Um, it was a need that wasn't being met, this need for autonomy. Yeah, it goes back to the human yeah. givens thing. Autonomy is such an important need for us. And when we take someone's autonomy away, um, they get violent or they get depressed. And I see that with my own children who are three and five. You know, when I tell them to do things they don't want to do and I insist on it, they react to it or they get, or they cry, they get very hurt by it. And what I'm doing is I'm taking away their autonomy. You know, and it's a lesson every time that happens. I think, why did I do that? You know, what could I have done differently? Well, I've just, I've just done something violent here, right now. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, so I get, do get a chance to reflect on it and to change. But um, so it didn't surprise me when I heard that study that people are killing themselves because they don't have autonomy. Now, if you just say that out of the blue, it sounds mad, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, you take it, you're, you're preventing someone from meeting an essential human need with no way to meet it, and um, they are going to get depressed as a result. Mm. So people yeah. are waking up. They're saying, "I don't want this anymore. You know, I want, I, I want something different. You know, I need to have some control back in my life." Um, and they're looking for it in, outside of work, obviously, in, in many cases, but. Um, some people think, well, work's never going to change, I'm just going to like, do my nine-to-five job and enjoy the rest of my life. But that's a bit sad, isn't it? Because there's a huge amount of time we spend at work. It's not quite a third of our lives, but it's close to a third of our waking lives. It's close to that. Especially for those people that are forced to work weekends as well, to make ends meet. Makes, Makes a lot of sense. I and mean, it's a couple of thoughts that come to mind there. Is one is I often talk about our job as being... Actually, with a big A, it's being, mm. being a, a humanising movement. Mm. And I can now see how that it is. It correlates with what you've just said. I mean, yeah. part, part of what we talk about is giving teams autonomy, and that yeah. means giving individuals within those teams greater autonomy, which meets a human need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people who start to really practice extreme programming, for example, in their teams, their life enriches, you know, because one of the principles of, of um, of XP is to not work more than a 40 hour week, right? No overtime. Um, it's a principle, but it's written about, he writes about it in the book. Um, and for most people, that's shocking, you know, because somehow your worth is, is in how many hours you do. Um, it's like that new executive who joined a company and uh, he was shocked by how few cars there were after six o'clock in the parking lot. He said, well, this is going to change. You know, so he went the opposite way, of course, but. Um, but yeah, so you know, people's life gets get people's lives get richer um, when they start to operate these principles, which mm -hmm. is what we want. Yeah. People with richer lives are going to be better workers. Well, and it, and it reminds me a lot of the Spotify model for, for those in the in the 
agile community. Mm. Spotify is a bit of a poster child right now for mm. a particular way of working. And what do they talk about a lot about, from what I understand in the presentations I've watched, is, is autonomy of the teams mm. and things that something they really focus on is the level of dependency between teams and where they see a lot of dependency, they're really seeking to reduce right. that dependency. So they make team autonomy to be a major mm. um, a, 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 a major goal right. for the culture is... Yeah, that's important. Like that. Yeah. It's almost like encapsulation of a team, I suppose, something like that. Yeah. And I was asked the question earlier today, the perennial, you know, how do we scale agile, mm. which has kind of become a, mm. a named question for me now. But the and that's how do we take the print if we've got a few teams working well in in, in this way, how do we how do we spread that across the organization? And, and one of my responses to that was, and this before we had this conversation, was we'll give the teams more autonomy mm. as a as have a culture that allows more autonomy within right. the teams and and they will naturally adopt the practices that make sense for them. I think that's true, actually. Don't you, you still yeah, that's what I yeah. thought that was what that's, yeah. that was what I mean that makes sense to me. It's like yeah, uh, and there's another essay in that book around scaling Scrum or scaling Agile. It's um, um, do it well in a small, and it will scale itself essentially. So that principle of you know, if you're doing Scrum well in the small, then teams are autonomous. Um, I've been in situations where um, I've seen one Scrum team start to um, become two Scrum teams, and then three Scrum teams, and then four. Um, it, it grows. It's like an organic. It's like a plant or something. You know, it starts to grow. You can't make it happen. You just have to nurture the soil, and it will happen if it needs to. You know, so when people are working in a way that meets their needs, let's go back to that, um, then they're going to want to be there and they're going to enjoy what they do and they're going to want it to grow. And other people are going to see it happening and they say, I want that too. I've actually witnessed that. I say, what are, you guys, what are you guys doing in there? I want to do that. Can I do that? Can I have a thing on the wall like that? You know, what, is it? what is this? You know, how come you took all the walls down? If you're, just stuff like that. You know, I want to do that too. So it's going to create the principle of attraction. You don't have to go out and promote this stuff and tell people what to do. You just do it. You do it well. And, um, and it grows. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay, my final question I ask all my guests, Tobias Meyer, what does being human mean to you? I think a lot of what we've talked about, right at the beginning, you, you, you opened with this, you know, it was, I, we didn't rehearse this. I didn't really know what you were going to ask me. And... Um, so I was a bit surprised, but I, I'm, I was willing to talk about that stuff because I have been willing to write about it. And being human is being your whole self, really. I mean, what is it? what does it mean to be human? We're all human beings, but we somehow are ashamed of it in some way, aren't we? We want to hide bits of ourselves. And um, So I suppose it's going back to Frederick Leloup's idea of wholeness. He talks about wholeness at work, but wholeness, just wholeness. Um, not be afraid of who we are. and, and um, Kind of live our lives out loud up to a point, you know, with respect for those around us. And as I said before, there can be some violence in living your life out too loudly. Um, but, you know, recognizing context and um, just being who you are, being unafraid, letting people judge you, you know, what, what, you know this idea of what will they say if I tell them, or you know, what will happen to me if I tell them, or what will happen to you if you don't? That's the other question, right? And. Uh, it can be equally destructive. So being human is being all the things you are. That's really it, I think. Fantastic. People want to get hold of you and get more of Tobias 
where, where, where to go. You can find me on social networks, various <laughs> kinds, I suppose. LinkedIn is the place I'm at most these days. Twitter, I was, a, I was a big Twitter user for many years, but I've sort of dropped off of that a bit now. But I'm there, I'm, you know, Tobias Mayer, you just search for me. Search for Tobias Mayer Agile or Tobias Mayer Scrum because um, you might end up with the um, astronomer, otherwise who's dead. So I get much tracked with that. Or oh, there's a guy that sells shoes as well, I think. So. There's quite a few other Tobias Mayers in the world. It's quite a common name as it happens, but... Um, would have not yeah. have expected that, but okay. <laughs> so make sure yeah. you get the, the Agile version. Yeah. Okay. There's a lake on the moon called Tobias Mayer named after the astronomer. Yeah, who also was uh, instrumental in solving the longitude problem. So if you want to do a bit of reading on Wikipedia, you can find out about other Tobias Mayers, or you could find me on LinkedIn. There's a book in there, Tobias Mayers of the World. It could be. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't Dave Gorman, the British comedian, ran, ran these events in where he invited everybody who was Dave Gorman? Had the same event. thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. You also sound like you would be a pretty special event if you did. Yeah, it'd be quite well. The, the, the famous ones are dead, so I don't know who else is left. But yeah, I can. You can find me easily online. Uh, yeah, and my website is tobiasmayer.uk. It's that simple. And I can highly recommend the writing. Thank you. Yeah. I was talking to my publisher uh, a few weeks ago, well, a few months ago now, actually, about doing another one. So we're, oh, putting, really? we're, going to start, we're starting to work on it. Yeah. yeah. So it's the first podcast you've revealed that information. It is, actually. It actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been mumbling, oh, I probably should write another book. But I'm actually doing it now. Not, yeah, yeah. So. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> first, folks. Okay. All good. right. Well, Should good we luck with that book. Thank you. Maybe we should get you on again. Which you've written. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah that'd be a lot yeah. fun. Yep. So thank you very much. We went deep and I appreciate everything that we covered. So All right. It was fun for me. Yeah, really interesting. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Richard. <laughs>